loving one another, serving one another. These are the things we've been talking about uh, since mid-October. Uh, we were studying First Peter chapter 4, where Peter gave the appeal or the command or the exhortation to the church. And it's amazing to think that he said this nearly 2,000 years ago, saying, keep fervent in your love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. And then he said, to serve one another, use your gift, whatever special gift God has given, to serve the people of God. And he was saying in that, that that's how we express our love, is by serving one another. Then last week, we looked in uh, John chapter 13, uh, the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, where he modeled so powerfully uh, that he, the Messiah Savior, he, he modeled how to be a servant, uh, where he... Uh, sort of stripped down to the dress of the lowest of, of the household servants, and he washed the feet of his followers uh, at that supper after they had been discussing who was the greatest. And the one who was far and away the greatest out of all proportion to any kind of scale they might set up, he's the one that got down and washed their feet and then said, I've set an example for you. Do as I've done. And he says back in Matthew, he says, the Son of Man didn't come to, serve, uh, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he came to do. He came to do that. That was part of his purpose uh, you know something that's a uh, an edifying exercise in your bible sometime go through and find a phrase like that where jesus says things like for this reason i came go through and look at what those things are in the book of john there's several of those where jesus says for this reason I was sent, or for this reason I came. And you go through and it tells you something about what his priority was, where he set the priority. And so here is Jesus. He models um, how to be a servant to the disciples. And then he says to them, follow this example and wash each other's feet. Wash one another's feet. Translation, love one another by serving one another. Amen? In whatever way. Because, of course, we're not in a culture like that where foot washing is quite the same thing. It's not a necessity the way it would have been 2,000 years ago in that region. But it, the, the principle is the same. Love one another by serving one another. Now, we share life in Christ with one another, right? We share life in Christ. That the word fellowship really doesn't just mean the time after the church service where we eat sweets and talk to each other. Fellowship means we're sharing life. That's part of it. But fellowship means we share together. We are sharing life. And so we share life in Christ with one another. We each receive forgiveness for our sins personally when we're brought by God's grace to the place of seeing that we're sinners. 
who are separated from God, and we respond individually and personally, right? Each of us has to do that. We can't, no one else can do it for us. As someone said just, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago in Life Group, God has no grandchildren. Everybody is his. All who come to him are his children, not grandchildren. Nobody comes through somebody else. Everyone is, is first generation with him. We all have to come personally. But when we're reconciled to God through Christ, we're brought into his presence and into his family as sons and daughters. We're brought into a family, into a collective, together with one another. It just is the way it is. We're with one another, worshiping him with one another. Can we do it alone? Of course we can. But we're part of the body of Christ. We're worshiping him alone, but together we're all part of it. We're part of a body. We'll never not be part of that. We'll always be part of that collective. There's a family where we worship him with one another. We hear and process his word with one another. We do it individually, but we're doing it together constantly. We're making disciples with one another. It's a job that we take on with one another together. It helps to have the body doing that, making disciples. We're growing in faith with one another, encountering him with one another, reaching and serving the world around us with one another, testifying to the world by word and deed, love and power, that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven. We're doing that together forever. We're together forever. We're on just this last week at Life Group. There's a woman that hopefully we're all going to get to meet. A lady who was part of our church before, who came here in September, the day that Kevin Cavanaugh was here. She called on Wednesday night and said, "John, I'm bringing somebody to Life Group tomorrow. I want to bring them." Well, actually, she wanted to meet, but I had meetings uh, Thursday and Friday night. So she said, I'm bringing her to home group. She said, God told her, call this person. And then she got to lead her to Christ. But she said, I'm so rusty. I don't know what to do next. I need other people to help me bring her along. Welcome to the club, amen? We need other people because there's part of it. I can think of, a, of a, an evangelist that was in our church years ago, and this guy was just one of those people. He, he had a gift of leading people over the threshold into the kingdom. But there were aspects that he needed some other people. He was so good at taking people over the line. But then there were other things where other people who would maybe help walk out the faith with he he needed them and he was a gatherer he would gather people in they'd get saved and it wasn't like oh there they don't need me anymore not quite like that but it was like oh good there's other people that were gifted in areas he wasn't he would gather and man it was a a glorious gift to have someone that would could do that. They could gather people in. But we're doing it together. We are not going to save the world alone. We're, and that's the, that's the mandate God has given us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Make disciples of all the nations. Well, we need the whole body for that. Amen? 
Somebody say amen nice and loud, please. I need that encouragement. God has no other plan than the one another plan of his body. He has no other plan. It's us together forever. And we'll continue together in his presence and his glory. We'll continue like that forever, doing his will. That's how he wants it. I want to be, we, we are with one another in the body of Christ. And I want to practice that. And I was thinking this week of this phrase, I want to be a one another kind of church where it's very clear that there's family, there's community, there's, um, a, there's that constant one another aspect to what we do. We're not lone rangers for Jesus. Right. We're, we're just not. I'm not. I, I, I need other people. I need that for so many things. And I know I'm not peculiar in that. As Ryan was saying, we, we would be weird if we thought we could do it alone. And we can't. We need one another. Somebody look at somebody else and say, I need you. Yeah, okay, that could be weird or creepy, but <laughs> maybe cover your eyes and say, <laughs> okay, let's read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. I'm going to read it out of the New American Standard. It says, there, is it up there? Okay, therefore, brethren, I'll say brothers and sisters, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated or opened up for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. I want to just point out, it's interesting that that word own is in there. Not forsaking our assembling together. It's almost like, underline it. Our own assembly. Somebody else might do it, but not forsaking our own assembling together. We're, I, I have to own this. I have to be part of it. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. So that's not just a 21st century thing. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now that, I, I feel like that kind of theme keeps coming up. Last week we looked at Jesus when he knew his hour had come. The, the end of this, that particular chapter of his life, he knew it was in sight. He knew his hour had come. And so he served the body. It said he loved them to the end. He loved them through. He completed it. And we had been for four weeks looking at 1 Peter 4.8, where Peter says the end is at hand. It's close. It's nearby. And then he says, 
Keep fervent in your love. So in light of the end being close, he says, okay, now's not the time to coast to the end. No, love even more fervently. Stretch out in full effort. And here it's the same thing. Don't forsake assembling together as is the habit of somebody encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, I won't get too far ahead of myself, but all the more as we see the day drawing near. I believe we're seeing it drawing near. Will it be another generation? Maybe, but still we need to put in full effort all the more as we see the day drawing near. If that was written in the book of Hebrews sometime in the first century, it's all the more pertinent, all the more relevant now. Okay? Now the author, I want to read this same passage out of one other, this is a translation. This guy, William Barclay, Scottish uh, scholar from a generation ago, he words it like this. Since then, brothers and sisters, in virtue of what the blood of Jesus has done for us, we can confidently enter into the holy place by the new and living way which Jesus inaugurated for us through the veil. That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest who is over the house of God, let us approach the presence of God with a heart wherein the truth dwells and with the full conviction of faith, with our hearts so sprinkled that they are cleansed from all consciousness of evil, and with our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the undeviating hope of our creed. For we can rely absolutely on him who made the promises, and let us put our minds to the task of spurring each other on in love and fine deeds." Let us not abandon our meeting together, as some habitually do, but let us encourage one another, and all the more so as we see the day approaching. He says, let's enter the presence. Let's go. And I think the, the New Living Translation words it that way. Let's, let's press into the presence with full assurance. The presence of God. And that's the imagery when it talks about going into the holy place where the veil is torn. It was talking about that place in the temple that only the high priest would go once a year. And in fact, all the imagery here relates to that picture of the high priest going in to make atonement for the people. That means to offer a sacrifice that would mean the forgiveness of God's people. The author of Hebrews, in a very scholarly way, goes through and he says, all of what came before in the Hebrew uh, covenants and history and religion, all of it was foreshadowing the reality of what Christ did. That was all a picture of what was to come when Jesus came. And so they would open up the veil and the high priest would come in and offer that sacrifice and that would be for the forgiveness. But now the flesh the author says the flesh that's been torn open, or did I say the flesh? The veil that's been torn open is the flesh of Jesus, his body. And interestingly that we're on the, on the threshold of the Christmas season, there's a, a Christmas carol that we sing every year. It's glorious in what it says, written by Charles Wesley. 
And he says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And it's like, here's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, veiled in flesh. People could only see his humanity when he was on the earth. It's like, this is God? This is the Son of God? Well, he looks like a regular man. That's right. But inside that regular man, fully man, but fully God, when his flesh was torn on the cross, we saw his his godness, if you will. It's like perfect love, perfect sacrifice that he took on to save us. Nothing too extreme for him. He'll go to the very to the nth degree to reconcile us to him. And he hangs on the cross and his flesh is torn. And now we see, which seems like a brutal end, but instead we see the glory of God. He would go to that length to reconcile you, David. To reconcile you, Sharice. To reconcile Claudia. To reconcile Ryan and Mateo. To reconcile Geraldine. To reconcile Tara. He did that for us. And all the rest of you, please, somebody look at somebody else and say, Amen, you too. He was just, okay. He did that. Now I got to name everybody. Okay, we'll start over, over here. He did that. We saw his glory, his, we saw the Godhead inside, veiled in flesh. It was covered up by flesh. And we'll talk more about that in the next four weeks. But here is Jesus doing this glorious thing. And he gives himself. And the author of Hebrews is showing all of what came before was a foreshadowing. Now we're looking at the real thing. The real Lamb of God. The real sacrifice that, oh, I just want to do it. But there's, it doesn't just atone for our sins symbolically but actually removes them, actually takes them out of the way, the sacrifice of Jesus. And the author says at times, he says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, but now a a better sacrifice, a better covenant, one that actually lifts our sins off of us. And when I got saved, the day I got saved, I knew that something had been lifted off. It wasn't just, oh, I feel positive about this. I rode home on my bicycle and I don't think I was touching the pavement. (laughs) I'm serious. Something was real. Something was new. A weight was lifted off. I was truly lighter than air. That stuff was gone. Somebody say, praise God. Now this writer... He gets to this point that we read in chapter 10. For nine and a half chapters now, he has been speaking a strong and clear and deep theological insight as to all that Christ did. Reflecting on the history, the covenants, the the religious practices of God's covenant people, the Jews. But now he shifts to the practical application of these theological realities. Don't be thrown off if anybody, you know, the word theology, it just means theo, God, and study, 
studying God, the, the word about God, studying that. He's speaking something theologically rich, but he doesn't just do it to be intellectually satisfied or to say, ooh, that's so cool to see that everything that happened was a reflection of Jesus. He's not trying to just tickle our intellect. No, now he's shifting to the practical of what does all that theological depth and reality do in our real lives? What's it going to look like on Monday morning when we go to work? What's it going to look like when you go into the classroom, when you meet your neighbor on the street? What's it going to look like with your family? What's it going to look like in real life? That's what we need and want, amen? And so he shifts to that, to a a pastoral inclination, a pastoral emphasis. How's this going to look? And he says, since these things are so, in verse 19, he says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he opened for us. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here it is, let us draw near. Let's do something about it. We know this, now let's do something. He says, let us draw near. Let us hold fast, in verse 23, the confession of our hope. He says, verse 24, let us consider how to spur or stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Ephesians 2 says we were made for good works, that we should walk in them. And here he's saying, Now, you can, the one another can help one another walk out those good works, those good deeds. We can help one another to love. We can help one another be what God wants us to be. In fact, we have to have that. We can't do it alone. We need one another. Iron sharpens iron. Somebody pushes us forward. Somebody helps lift us back up. Pastor Mel used to say, somebody can fall alone, but it requires their brothers and sisters to lift them back up. They can get up, but it, we, people get restored by their brothers and sisters. They restore them and say, okay, go on. We can go on. Let's do it. Let's go on. So here, he says, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. He said, here's what God did. Here's how we need to respond. He did something first. Now we respond to what he's done by doing something that relates to what he did. So, Verses 19 to 22. Since therefore we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he opened for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What does all that mean? The picture here is of a priest coming in because he's still using, he's still relating this to the old covenant and the imagery of the temple where the priest would come in, not into the holy of holies, but just the Levitical priests 
would come in and there was a basin there and they would wash. That's what he means by washing. Some think he's referring to baptism. It could work, but because of the context, it's like the priest would come in and they'd wash themselves. Now they're fit. And, you know, it was somewhat of a symbolic washing because they'd already be clean. But they'd come in, they'd wash their hands, and now they're fit to worship God. Now they're fit to offer the sacrifices of the people. Now they're fit to build a bridge with the people that came to be forgiven, the people that came to worship God in the Old Covenant. So they would, he would come in, the Levite would come in and wash himself. And he's saying here, we've been sprinkled with the blood like the Levites. We've been washed. We're fit to worship. We're fit interact with the living God and to offer the sacrifices that God desires. We won't go into all of it, but at the end of the book of Hebrews, he points out what sacrifice we now offer because there's only one blood sacrifice forever now. We don't need to do that. He says, offering up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks, like we were singing tonight. We lift up our gratitude, our praise, our thanks. That's the sacrifice we can offer now. So, here we are. We come in. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place, which he opened for us, let's draw near. Let's draw near to him. That is, let's get close to God. Stand in his presence, as New Living Translation says, as William Barclay said, And you think, okay, let's go into the very presence of God. Oh, I'm not worthy to do that. Could I really go into the presence of the holy God? Am I worthy? Jesus died and shed his blood to qualify you to go into the presence of the holy God, the living God himself. Jesus died for that. So you could approach God, as he says here, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having your conscience sprinkled. Oh, sprinkled with blood. That is, he carries on and the, the blood meant forgiveness. I'm washed. Those sins are gone. I can approach him. Am I worthy to do it? Well, you're worthy in that Christ has qualified you to do it, to go into the presence of of God. He qualified you to do exactly that. To stand before God. Unashamed. As we were saying tonight. Singing. Unashamed in your presence. Let me ask this. And you don't, don't have to raise your hand. But. How many people here struggle with shame? That dark cloud that kind of follows you around. And just if you get too close to God, particularly, that dark cloud gets darker and it's like, you don't belong there. It's like that series of movies from many years ago. I know what you did last summer. I know the things that are in your life. And if we believe that, We're disqualified. On the other hand, 
if we combat that the way Jesus did when the devil tempted him and say, hang on a second, it is written that he died for me, shed his blood, therefore I have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Not because I'm such a hot shot and I did such a great job, but by the blood of Jesus. What did I do to earn it? Nothing. What could I do? Nothing. But is it real? Is it shed for me? Yes. Do I have faith in it? Yes. And it's like, I'm in. Forget the disqualification. I'm qualified because of the blood of Jesus. I'm going in. I'm going into his presence. I'm going in where I need to get built up, where I need to get transformed, where I can be loved like nowhere in the universe. Don't let the enemy, he says, let us draw near. So, all this theological richness, what's the practical thing? Go near. Get in there. Go close. Get to him. Get to him. Get after God. Draw near to God. Draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The enemy only is too happy to remind you of what you used to be or even what you have done recently. But the blood of Jesus covers that, cleanses us from all sin. You can have full assurance of faith, full confidence that his worth, Christ's worthiness, gives you access to the very holy presence of God. Full confidence in that. Not in what we are or have done, but in what he's done. Standing on the outside looking in doesn't express humility to God. Standing outside saying, I wish I could draw close to you, God, but I'm just so unworthy. That doesn't express humility to God. It says you haven't yet responded to Jesus in faith or that is receiving forgiveness and access and eternal life, or you don't view what Jesus did as enough. You think that what you've done is greater than what Jesus has done, and you're disqualified. What he did was enough to allow you to walk confidently into the most holy place and have an audience with God. And that is a life-giving place for us. We need it. So I want you to, we're, we're going to, there's more, but I want you to bow your head for a second. Father, I pray for every person in this room right now who has been disqualified by shame. Where shame or condemnation has sort of outweighed in the, our thinking has outweighed the works of Christ and the righteousness of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. I pray right now in the authority of Jesus' name and the Holy Spirit that that shame, listen, if you want to be rid of it, I want you to hold it out to him right now. If, that's, if you've been ruled by shame, if it's been hanging around like that dark cloud, I want you to hold it out to God. Because... You have to be in agreement on this. Now, in the name of Jesus, I break that and lift it off. I pray that that dark cloud would disperse in Jesus' name, in Jesus' mighty name. 
I thank you, Father God, for the sun beginning to shine, the sun of righteousness, for the truth to come in. That there would be nothing barring these ones from going into the most holy place close to you in your presence. I say to that shame in Jesus' name, never return, never come back. I thank you for your word right now, God, bringing healing to whatever the root was that allowed that thing, whatever that sprung from, that shame, that you bring healing and restore it. That the ground will remember that root no more. It'll be gone in Jesus' name. I thank you for it, Father God. There's no better place to be in the universe than in the presence of God. Okay, secondly, verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast. Now, we read this before when we were doing 1 Thessalonians, that word, holding fast. It means keep a tight grip on it. Don't let it go. Hang on to it. Even if it looks like you're, you're being shaken, hold tighter. Hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering. Bible hope, and the word here, the, the word hope is sort of unlike we say today where someone says something and people say, oh, I hope so. But it's just kind of like in football when, there's a, you know, when it's right at the end and they have one play left and they throw what they call a Hail Mary pass. It's very unlikely that this will work, but it's like we've got nothing to lose. Everybody runs down the field and we need a touchdown or we lose. And so they throw this pass and, you know, you got basically everybody on the field jumping up to catch that thing. Every now and then it works out. Bible hope is not like that. Bible hope means a confident anticipation. It's why? Because what is it based on? Look at what it says. Let us uh, sorry. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering or bending. Because or for he who promised is faithful. I'm standing on your faithfulness, God. I'm depending on you. My hope is not just because I'm drumming up the ability to hope. No, my hope is based on you because you, you are faithful. The God of the promises is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Everybody say it. God is faithful. Okay? So we need to respond by holding fast our hope. If it's shaken, we're with one another again. Have somebody stir your faith up. Help you to hang on to it. I, I know sometimes Rose and I are talking and, you know, with some things going on and just feel like, wow, the world is just coming apart at the seams. And we get talking and one of us will say, ah, you know what, Jesus wins. And it's like, yeah, bring us back to, to true north here. Like, yeah, well, let's not forget like, there's, there is a lot of stuff. It, isn't, it doesn't look good. But yeah, yeah, come back to what, what will survive this world. God will. His word. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. He who promised is faithful. And so we need to keep coming back. And that kind of experience is not just with Rose, but with us. I know a couple of years ago during, during the COVID time, Brad and Michael and I were getting together in... Um, this little, uh, what do they call that, triple O's uh, at a gas station, this little kind of restaurant thing, because it was the only place that would <laughs> let some of us meet. You know, they had all the rules about everything. And so we would go to this little kind of fast food place because COVID couldn't get you in a fast food place. Uh, so <laughs> we, were, we were okay there. And we were talking, and it's like sometimes we'd get talking about the stuff that was going on through all that craziness. And then it's like, hang on a second. You know, like we realized, you know, why are we just talking about everything that's crazy and, you know, the decisions of government and all this kind of stuff? It's like, hang on. Like, are, are we, are we mere men or are we, are we Jesus following believers? Amen. And I, I can remember just, you know, reaching across and slapping Michael and saying, <laughs> stop it. No. <laughs> he did it to me. Um, let's, we're not, just, we don't have, we have a solid hope because it's based on the one who's faithful. Amen. Amen. The one who promised is faithful. Okay, boy, I'm out of time here. And I'm not going to carry this over to next week as Advent is coming. Next, verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. As part of a one another church, part of my role as a pastor is to help you fulfill your calling and to do the good works that I know you want to do to please God. And that's not just my role, that's that's everybody's role. Again, even like that thing with Brad and Michael and where we would s- stir one another to love and good deeds. It's like pushing each other to do that. It's, it's important. We can do that. That's, that's there for us. So let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And here we come. And not forsaking assembling together we have to be together as ryan was saying a few minutes ago let's invite people to church let's have a a a culture of invitation but not just unbelievers there are believers that need the encouragement of hey i haven't seen you for a little while not like it's something to you know, check and okay, God's going to look and say, hmm, you know, you, you missed a couple of Saturday nights there. I'm not sure. No, not like that. But you need this. I want you there. Like you, we don't just come to get, we come to give. And maybe if somebody says, ah, I was feeling like, because I've heard this many times and I've heard just about every pastor I've ever met say they've heard it. Ah, oh, I'm just not being fed. Well, I'm, it just didn't get blessed. Maybe, maybe God wants you to be a blessing. And I guarantee if you are, you'll get something. If you're, if you're, if you're giving, you'll get. That's right. It's, it's blessed to give. 
and receive, of course. I want people to receive, but there's, there's something about, we need you there. We need to walk together. Don't forsake assembling together, gathering together, as is the habit of some. Okay, but encouraging one another. Man, I'd like to stop on that. Encouragement. I had a friend, a uh, pastor in Atlanta, who he was such a, a southern gentleman and he used to uh, he used to call and you know pick up the phone hello and there'd be a pause somehow I would know you know and he'd go John it's Brady just in this and then he'd say you know what I like about you everything <laughs> That was his thing. He'd say that. And he, with that southern manner that, that worked, you know. And it's like, well, then you like more about me than I like. Because there's some things I'm not crazy about. But he would say that. But encouraging one another doesn't just mean saying, oh, you're great. Everything about you, Ely, is great. Which it is true of Ely. But um, let me use another example. Somebody who isn't here tonight, <laughs> I don't know who to use. We, we can't just, no, I don't want to do that. Um, I already said I slapped you and it wasn't true, but <laughs> encouraging one another doesn't just mean saying, you're great, everything about you is great, that kind of thing. No, encouraging means put courage in. It means in courage. The thing that'll true, like, it's, it's nice to be valued, of course. It's, it's good to be valued. That, that is an encouraging thing. But the courage that we're talking about here to really assemble together and encourage one another. How? God is faithful. Oh man, I've got a bit of courage. God's not gonna let me down. No, we encourage one another by pointing to the one who's faithful to his promises always. Now, as I say, it, we value one another. We, we say favorable things to one another. But the thing that's really going to propel us to the finish line is the courage that comes by saying, Jesus endured this and he did it for you and he wants you and he's calling you and he won't come up short. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus. We keep speaking those kind of realities and it's like, yeah. It's like I can be a champion not just because I'm, again, such a hotshot, but because he's living in me. And these things that he says are true for his people, which includes me. Amen? Amen. Which includes the person next to you which includes the person behind you and in front of you. And we speak those realities to one another and encourage one another. We need to assemble together to do that. I read a story about, how many have heard of D.L. Moody? Okay. He was uh, an evangelist at the end of the 19th century. I don't know how far into the 20th century he lived, but he was outstanding man of God and led so many people to Christ. 
There was a, a wealthy, um, influential businessman in Chicago where he lived for uh, much of his ministry, and he traveled a lot too, but he was in Chicago, and uh, if I remember correctly, a lady who went to his church said, my husband, he professes to be a believer, but he just doesn't want to come to church. He doesn't. He won't come and that kind of thing. And D.L. Moody paid him a visit, and... Um, he, you know, this would have been late 19th century, a coal fireplace in the man's office. And the man just said, I just don't really feel I need the church. I believe the Bible. I'm walking. I just don't really feel I need it. And D.L. Moody is sitting, <laughs> apparently, he used, you know, uh, coal stoves had uh, always sitting by them those tongs so they could pick up a, a piece of coal. And D.L. Moody opened the thing, took one of the coals out, and he set it outside the fireplace on the hearth where, without saying a word, and apparently him and, yeah, exactly, him and the businessman sat there and watched the thing go cold and black. Whereas all the ones that were still huddled together in the fireplace, they're hot and they're glowing and they're radiating heat. And it's like, what? And, and the man, apparently, they watched that thing go cold and return just to its black color. And then he said, <laughs> apparently, I'll see you on Sunday. <laughs> You know, like, that's a teachable man. That's a good guy. I think, okay, praise the Lord. This guy, he's, he's teachable. He saw it. Okay, I get what you're saying, and I'll be there. And um, that is us separated. That when, when we're separated from the body, the glow can go out. The heat can go down. We're where we, we need to be in that, in that one another setting where we're building one another up, encouraging one another, assembling with one another, and we'll end with this. And all the more as we see the day approaching, we're going to need one another in the days I don't mean that as some oh, you know, awful thing, but we're going to need one another in discouraging times, right? We, we already do. There are some of those times already upon us with things going on, uh, you know, for us personally, but also world events. We're going to need to stand together. And so to, to make this, uh, to apply this, to us. Back to that word where it says um, not forsaking our own assembling together. This isn't just a general word of truth. This is our own. This is I need to do that. Now here I'm speaking to the people that are in church but we can again encourage people and say you know, as a believer, somebody gets saved, they need the Word of God, they need the Bible next to feed their spirit. 
they need to begin developing their relationship with Christ, and part of that is certainly through prayer, and they need a local church. They need brothers and sisters that will walk with them. How many here had kind of a honeymoon period when you got saved for maybe a week or two weeks or something? How many people here had a period where it just seemed like, wow, I got the Midas touch. I got saved and everything I touched was gold. It just seemed like I'm God's favorite. You know, it's like, you know, uh, it seemed like that. And then how many had the honeymoon come to a grinding halt? <laughs> yeah. Something changed, and you found out, oh, the, the world still has some, you know, potholes and speed bumps and ugly stuff, and, and that's, now we really need one another, right? Because it's good in that sort of honeymoon period, it seemed like, wow, God is just, I wake up in the morning, and he's speaking to me, and, uh, you know, and everything about that, and I'm not saying that to cool anybody's zeal to expect great things, you know, daily, of course, we want to. But we need one another to, to keep going forward. For new believers, and we never, we never get past that. We need it. We need one another. Amen? So, to apply this, stay gathered. Stay connected with the church. Call somebody. Even if you feel like, you know, right now you don't need it, call somebody. Call somebody, encourage somebody. Ask them what they need. Pray for them. Even if they don't hear about it, pray for them. Pray, God, encourage that brother. Encourage that sister. Do something in their life. I know they have a need. They need a job or they need a breakthrough in this or they're, you know, they're having trouble with their back or something. And God, I pray you'd touch them. I pray you'd do something about it. I, God, you're putting this person on my heart. I don't even know what for, but I'm going to pray for them. Like, Let's, let's be a one another church, upholding one another, loving one another, serving one another. Father, we thank you for this time together, and I pray that you'd keep that word glowing in our hearts, that we'd be those people who are staying sort of, uh, staying hot in Christ because we're together. And we're warming one another. We're helping one another sustain and maintain um, a fire for you. God, I thank you for each one. For those that think, oh, my gifts are small or my gifts are only useful in the world. No, God, we know that You've given people gifts and that they have an application among your people. And we pray for that, for serving of one another, loving of one another, encouraging of one another, and assembling together, Father God. Thank you, Lord. God bless the brothers and sisters in this room. Bless them mightily. In Jesus' precious name, we ask. Amen.